Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Steve Blank is an adjunct professor at Stanford and a co-founder of the Gordian Knot Center for National Security Innovation. Steve consults for the National Security Establishment on innovation methods, processes, policies, and doctrine. His book, The Four Steps to the Epiphany, is credited with launching the Lean Startup Movement. He created the curriculum for the National Science Foundation Innovation Corps. At Stanford, he co-created the Department of Defense Hacking for Defense and Department of State Hacking for Diplomacy curriculums. Steve's latest class at Stanford, Technology, Innovation, and Great Power Competition, is providing crucial insight on how technology will shape all the elements of national power. Steve, thank you so much for coming on Village Global's Solar Punk Podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Steve, you've done a better job than anyone we know at analyzing and documenting the history of Silicon Valley and its ties to the defense industry. We don't need to go over all of that right now. Our listeners can go ahead and find that on YouTube or uh, you know, read some of the books you've written. But can you give a brief overview of technology's historical relationship to the defense industry? Yeah, it's really kind of interesting because it is the secret history of, of both tech and the Department of Defense and the tech in Silicon Valley writ large. And, and by the way, the video is called The Secret History of Silicon Valley. You could find it it's on my website. And as you pointed out in different places on YouTube. But basically what happened is, uh, is that uh, pre-World War II, uh, universities had almost zero federal funding and the connection between university R&D and government uh, were almost nil. Um, but what happened is uh, just as World War II started, the uh, scientist who was at MIT and then the Carnegie Institute went to the president and said, World War II is going to be a technology war and the military is ill-equipped. That is the uh, military arsenals and shipbuilding organizations were just building existing technology. And he said, it's going to be war of physics and electrons and whatever. So why don't we, in fact, build these uh, advanced weapon systems in universities um, and, and turn them into prototypes that commercial industry could scale? And of course, the military laughed hysterically and Roosevelt agreed that that was actually a good idea. And the government set up something called OSR&D, Office of Science, Research and Development, and built radar, electronic warfare, rockets. They started a small physics project, which actually spun out of OSR&D, became the Manhattan Project. And so all the advanced technology weapon systems that went into winning the war uh, or helped winning the war were derived by civilians, uh, some of them led by uh, uh, military leaders like uh, the Manhattan Project. But post-World War II, the government thought this was a pretty good idea. So during the Cold War, kept funding research and research universities that ended up as weapon systems. And the connection to Silicon Valley is there was a professor named Fred Terman who ran the electronic warfare and electronic intelligence business for the United States during the war, went back to Stanford, took all his engineers and said, congratulations, you're all faculty. And basically took Stanford, which was essentially a liberal, a liberal arts school, into a powerhouse in microwave and electronics. And he did something in the 50s and 60s that no university did, which he turned the school into an outward-facing university. Not, that he, not only did he take government grants, he told his professors and grad students that it was good for the country to leave the university and leave academia and start companies. And that was unheard of. But it wasn't just civilian companies. It was start companies that could sell to prime contractors who were building these new class of weapon systems, radar-guided missiles, jammers, et cetera. And basically created an ecosystem around Stanford that before we were Silicon Valley, we were microwave valley. He believed the future was going to be microwaves. And then accidentally, a scientist who uh, headed up uh, radar bombing training during World War II and then went to Bell Labs, a guy named William Shockley, who was the co-inventor of the transistor, decided to come out and start his company in Mountain View, California, and that was the start of Silicon Valley. So that's the basically the long short version of the story, which was the Valley was started with defense contracts and um, and someone with a focus on turning the university into an entrepreneurial center to help the country win uh, the Cold War. 
And Steve, uh, we're going to get more into the situation now on where we are as a country and what that means for our institutions, uh, particularly the military and the defense sector. But before we get into that, as you're, you know, thinking about the, the previous history of Silicon Valley and its relationship to defense, what do you think are the lessons on institution building that we learned back then that perhaps we could use again now? Well, I think the situation is identical to uh, pre-World War II for the what was then the Department of War, Department of Navy, and today the Department of Defense, is that the, at both times we have world-class people, world-class organizations for a world that no longer existed. And that is that was the situation, you know, with a military facing a, a technology war um, pre-World War II. They were not a technology armed forces. And that's the situation today is that we have world-class people, world-class organizations designed to use federally funded research centers and primes and, you know, existing acquisition processes. And unfortunately, that's not the world we're in, but we haven't organized in a way that um, that radically shifts that we're, we're still interested in reforming the edges rather than redesigning the process. If you think about what happened in that World War II story, we did not reform the edges of the DOD. We radically redesigned the process of how to acquire and then accelerate past our adversaries in advanced technology. Unfortunately, unfortunately, today, our adversaries have done that, and we haven't. The U.S. not only can't keep pace with China's rate of innovation, we can't even keep pace with North Korea's uh, pace of innovation. And, and I don't think people put their heads around that, right? North Korea has four generations of ICBMs in, in the last 10 years. and We'll try, still trying to budget the, the next generation after Minuteman that might show up by 2030 something. Um, kind of amazing contrast of, of what's broken here. And, and we'll talk about this a little later, but, but the problem is there's no one has stepped all the way back and said, we've been trying to innovate inside of an ex- organization that's designed for execution in a much different world and not recognize that this ain't going to work with the entire org chart. It just doesn't work. We got the wrong people, wrong processes, wrong whatever to do the other things we need to be doing. It's not like we need to stop what we're doing now. We need to think about the new things we need to be doing at scale. So we'll get into that, but uh, that's my high order bit. Do you think that problem is getting worse or better on, in the no, US? It's getting right worse. Now? Like- it's, it, well, remember, we're no longer setting the pace here. So if we were still fighting non nation states or we were fighting the Soviet Union or you know, competing with, Okay, whatever system we worked, if our adversary is using that same system, that would just be fine. But it's getting worse because, for example, China's operating like Silicon Valley, and on a good day, DOD operates like General Motors. And that's not a fair fight. Um, and it's not because we're stupider or, or have worse people. We're just, we just don't understand the problem at scale all the way back. And people keep wanting to reform the edges without realizing this requires a redesign, not a reform. And it requires a doctrine that kind of integrates what's really going on in the outside world and commercial technology and innovation methods and metrics and commercial contracting and speed and cycle time. All that is not built into the system we have. And trying to reform it just misses the point. Trying to ask someone who's been the worked at Raytheon for 17 years to be the head of R&E of the Department of Defense is like, they're not dumb. It's just not the world. They, they don't live in Silicon Valley. And while they'll kind of say they know what's going on, the ultimate test is if you look at the major defense acquisition programs, what's called the MDAPs, and just see how much money we're spending on existing vendors and existing systems, and then go, well, where are the new vendors and the new systems who are building the 21st century shipyards and arsenals and, and AI and software and whatever? They don't show up. And so while we, ha- while we do a lot of innovation theater inside the DOD, there's a hundred plus incubators and accelerators. And, and now the R&E has a, a venture fund itself. I, I mean, it just pales in insignificance to what, what's going on in private capital in Silicon Valley. And for those of us who sit out here, who understand the DOD and IC and also understand venture capital, you're, you're trying to like shake people by the collar. It, it's the old Upton Sinclair quote from the turn of the 20th century. It's hard to convince a man of something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. And, and so, you know, when everybody's kind of beholden to the primes, and I don't mean there, there's anything bad about them, 
it's just much like World War II. We, we need something to supplement them. And it's not some theory here. We're being outpaced simply because our adversaries are doing what we do well in the commercial world. We're just kind of like operating with spears and shields while someone else has machine guns. It's like, guys, you know, unfortunately, or, or semi-fortunately, we're seeing the example of what happens when 21st century drones meet 20th century artillery. Kind of interesting standoff. And we're going to be unpleasantly surprised in the South China Sea. Very helpful. I will say, though, Steve, the programs that you've worked on, right, hacking for defense, hacking for diplomacy, these feel like, from an outsider perspective, you're working to try to solve this almost from the bottom up, right? You're taking that Silicon Valley DNA, you're taking students from all across the country and the world and saying, let's apply these commercial innovative principles to try to solve some of these core problems. I would love your take on, can it be solved all from the bottom up? Doesn't some change need to happen from the top down, from the middle, et cetera? How, how would you actually fix this uh, yeah, if, so, you, if you were in charge? So in a perfect world, when we didn't have a, you know, a, a bicameral uh, legislature that was actually politicized along party lines rather than trying to solve the country's problem instead of a party's problem, this would be another Goldwater Nichols Act because the DOD is incapable of reforming itself. And and it's not, again, malice or bad or whatever. I don't think it just has the internal experience and perspective. So so the answer is, I think it's going to take Congress stepping back and saying, I think we have the wrong organization to solve the problem going forward. And, and part of the problem is, remember, the defense budget is a zero-sum game. If I'm going to create new champions for the 21st century, somebody else's budget and revenue is going to go down and profits are going to go down. And because part of Congress is now, or a good chunk of it, is coin-operated by you know K Street and, and and lobbyists, you're kind of in this funny spiral of of it's hard to get things done that radically affects the major revenue of of the top ten primes. You know the lobbying budget, ex, you know, exceeds the revenue of most of the most innovative startups that the DoD actually needs. Um, but I think it's going to take something as radical as Goldwater Nichols and what we did with OSR and D. And, and the organizational design that we need really isn't that hard. We need to work from backwards from not, not what are the things we should do, but what are the outcomes we want, right? Let's remember the goal is the outcomes. And, and the outcomes are we, we need to adopt and deliver. And here's the word, deliver new technologies, new weapon systems, new operational concepts with speed and urgency and order of magnitude faster than we can. And if you look at our processes and procedures and people and org charts and whatever, all the all the reform we're going to do on the PPEBE, you know, might get us there in 2075. Well, we're all going to be speaking Mandarin by then. Um, so, so the real observation is we need to build just an ambidextrous organization. And that's a fancy word for an organization that could execute like the current DOD does, but also innovate at speed. And that requires different people, different processes, different organization, different vendors, different primes, different whatever. And if you want a commercial version of what an ambidextrous organization looks like, look at SpaceX now today on the commercial world. Uh, they're launching five or six times a month. And on their pads, they need operational excellence with zero risk. You know, they're doing innovation, but it's minimum innovation. Blowing things up on a pad is not a good idea. You want that down to zero because human lives and and certainly lots of capital is at risk. But on the other hand, they have another part of the company that in fact believes in not only blowing things up in the test pad, because if you're not doing that, you're not pushing the envelope fast enough. It's the cycle time of doing that. So they have an agile innovation process. Now think about that. This is the same, same company doing two very different things with two different groups of people, two different risk profiles, but more importantly, they're talking to each other. It's not, you know, here are the smart people and here are the people who turn the crank. They're learning from each other, right? The the guys building the Raptor engines and the uh, Starship need to know where the GSE plugs in and what are the right materials and, and things they need to get right on the next rocket. And the people doing the existing rockets can learn about new materials and incremental upgrades. So they are innovating, but innovating with minimal risk. Now match that to the DOD. All we have is the operational excellence piece. We have things called doctrine and we have operational concepts that that drive that stuff about here's the you know, here's the training we have, the people we have, the equipment we have, et cetera. 
but we don't have the other part organized in a way that takes the best of the country. Here's not only how we use our FFRDCs and primes, but here's how we now plug in startups, scale-ups, universities, et cetera, students and whatever, who already know how to innovate at speed and already want to actually work with the DOD. So it's really, at least from my perspective, really easy to draw a new org chart. And in fact, if you would draw that org chart, you know you're right when existing people would like have their heads explode. <laughs> no, you know, this will take away from X or Y or Z or my favorite, you know, system and whatever. But if the outcome, and again, I keep going back to outcome, is we deliver weapon systems, concepts, and whatever that get us not only equal to our adversary, but create asymmetric opportunities that they've been doing to us in the last five years that we now do to them and get us ahead of them. I think that's the only way we could do that. You know, if you think about it, just sidebar for a second, we used to be proud about the offset strategy we did to the to the Russians with Bill Perry and, you know, uh, the Cold War, people have stopped talking about it because the Chinese have just done that to us in the last five years. They've done at least three or four public ones and can't tell you about the other ones. But think about hypersonics or DF-21s targeted air carriers or, you know, um, um, or the new fields of hundreds of ICBMs. All those are pretty asymmetric surprises to us that we're just going, uh, uh, um, and 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 you really wonder about what is what's kind of keeping us from doing that with speed and urgency. And that's because we've become mired in this org chart of people, process, et cetera, that's designed for great execution with zero risk. When in, And by the way, if you look at the F-35 or 40 class carriers, those processes did not create zero risk. In fact, those processes are probably as bad as anything one could have designed, but because there's a circular process of, of people then leaving the DOD and going to work for those companies. That's why we still have them. But just imagine you plugged in uh, Silicon Valley. And I say Silicon Valley, I don't mean the physical place, but the startup culture and scale-up culture into the DOD. You'd find us delivering things much differently, much quicker. We'd look a lot faster than we are today. Right. Sorry for the soliloquy, but... No, no, no. This is fantastic. Um, Steve, Steve, I, I want to double click on the point that you made about broader reform. Uh, you mentioned the Goldwater Nichols Act. Can you explain for those who don't know exactly what it was and why do we need something along those lines again? Well, if you, if, if your listeners remember, in uh, about 1985, after the operation in Granada and, you know, kind of thinking about how we executed the uh, uh, in Vietnam, uh, where the Navy, you know, bombed with one set of criteria, the Air Force bombed in another. And and, and we, we realized that the services really weren't talking to each other. And as much as we try to make jointness, it really wasn't designed in. It wasn't that anybody was being bad, is that each service had their own kind of silo of what, you know, success looked like, even in wartime. And that there really wasn't an integrated force unless you kind of forced the issue, which we kind of did in World War II and tried in Vietnam. But really, again, the air campaign in North Vietnam is a classic example. If you thought there were two countries uh, fighting there, uh, you know, it actually looked like four countries fighting there. Uh, so Congress started to have a set of hearings. Of, and it first started as how should we reform the Joint Chiefs and then ended up having a longer conversation that said, you know what? What we really need is this notion of jointness. And the jointness should not be around the services. They should be around geographic areas. And so we stood up this idea of something called combatant commands. And a combatant command is, think of it as a matrix organization, where I'll take some army, some navy, some marines, some whatever, and, and we'll put them together. And the person responsible for prosecuting the war is not the service, but the head of that regional combatant command. And so what does that leave the services? Well, it leaves them responsible for training, but it also leaves them responsible for acquisition of weapon systems and things they need to fight the war that they deliver to the combatant commands. Not in a, that's Steve's simplified version. And of course, that was over the dead body of, you know, the DOD and the service chiefs, et cetera, because that took away their authority to, what do you mean we no longer fight the war? You know, that's what we're, that's what the Navy's been for, for, you know, 200 and some odd years. And that's what the Army has done. And um, so Iraq and Afghanistan was fought by a combatant command. You know, Indo-PACOM will be the one that fights uh, in in the South China Sea, though it's obviously mostly Navy. But again, you 
part of the Navy or the Marine Corps, and you have the you know, EABO strategy, the Marines, part of the Indo-PACOM strategy. It, because there was no way the DOD was going to reorganize itself that radically. And it took a set of hearings and Congress finally understanding. Again, as I said, it started with like, maybe the Joint Chiefs isn't organized well enough because it isn't joint enough, and then realized, no, the rest of this stuff isn't joint enough. And they created a new idea that just never existed as a as an organization. It existed in a concept that is people understood we needed jointness, but didn't understand how far to go. And the and combatant commands is a radically new idea for the DOD. Um, by the way, another radically new idea is people haven't paid too much attention to that ought to pay more attention is how the Space Force has organized their own staff functions. You know, if you look at what a staff looks like in a in a service or combatant command, everybody else's staff is called a Napoleonic staff structure because, you know, G2, G3, you know, or J, you know, two through nine comes from Napoleon, right? There is no idea of CIO, CTO, you know, supply chain, et cetera. Well, the Space Force said, maybe we ought to like organize something closer to the 21st century than the 20th. And so you're seeing different parts of services and commands kind of trying to figure this out, but it still doesn't solve the the acquisition and delivery problem and the, and the how fast can we create new operational concepts. Just to remember, I mean, everybody's been talking about how do we reform what's called the PPBE, you know, the planning, programming, budgeting, and I forget what the E stands for, execution or something. It, it take, In the time it takes the paperwork to go from one end of the Pentagon to the other is about two to three years for just the, the first part of the cycle. Remember, in startups or scale-ups, ship two or three products in those in those times. We could be delivering thousands of things to to war fighters while we're still pushing paperwork in the Pentagon, and and somehow that's acceptable. And remember why this is hard. I'll keep going back to the primes and their lobbying for a prime contractor over your dead body. Do you want this to happen? Because your entire business model is predicated for. Think about it. Our our Teslas could be upgraded in software overnight well in a military system if you want a new upgrade that's a new contract um that's a couple hundred million dollars what do you mean you want me to push an upgrade that's like there goes my revenue in my business model or what do you mean you want me to deliver capabilities to the battlefield to to space no 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 I, i want you to buy the rocket or i want you to buy this thing not buy the service if you're just buying the service there goes all my hardware contracts and now the risk is back on me not everything could be bought as service, but NASA's done a pretty good job with commercial uh, um, cargo and uh, commercial astronauts. Deliver them, and we'll pay you on delivery, not pay you on here. Just as a side, just to, because you mentioned Stanford, you know, in Silicon Valley physically, it kind of explains why DIU is like can't get past the thirty million dollar budget, and Mike Brown resigned out of frustration. Well, why would anybody want it to succeed in the DoD? Because Everything they're bringing in competes with a prime. And in fact, there is no budget or schedule or dollars behind it. And by the way, it shouldn't be an R&E. It should be an ANS, right? It should be an acquisition and sustainment. It should be a feeder for what's the new set of things we're building at scale. You know, just as a as a shorthand, I mean, just as a radical thought, I think the, the whole orchard there is inverted. ANS and R&E should be working for DIU. Think about that. Um, then you'd have a model of, oh, now maybe we'd understand what it is we're trying to accomplish. And I think the organization would probably be a little more sophisticated than that, but just turn that on its head. <clears throat> and then you would be hiring new people. You'd be hiring more Mike Browns than than the current people we have. And again, it's not that the current people are bad or there's malice involved. Their entire careers have been oriented to this navel gazing of, I know the primes, I know the FFRDCs, I know their cap- capabilities. And just let me put a point on it. It's not that I would ever suggest we don't need the primes. There's decades of experience that no startup or scale up is ever going to get in two or three years. This new world would use the primes as the integrator of all these complex things that I'll get you this, but something more complicated. You know, I know the environmental conditions in space or, or on the sea or under the sea or how to integrate massive pieces. That's no startups activity. But gee, if I want to build complex AI machine learning models, you think I'm going to go to a prime? You know, if I'm not going to Andrew or somebody else like that, well, why? 
So Steve, if we are to, you know, take a little bit more about the founders perspective, you know, the founders that want to work with the government, that want to help sol solve those problems, how applicable are the, the learnings and the lessons from uh, Lean Startup and the four steps of the epiphany uh, when it comes to selling to the government? Can you really be lean? Um, well, you can be lean, but the but that's a different. So, so remember, lean is not just about product market fit and, and running MVPs about product. It's actually uh, testing assumptions about business model and about, you know, sales channel and, you know, gee, can I afford to spend 18 months trying to sell to or been on a broad area announcement or work through DIU or something else? Or should I be partnering with a prime or, you know, someone else who actually knows how to operate yeah, through the, you know, government system? The good news is in the last couple of years, there's now a set of venture capitalists like uh, Shield Capital and others, um, and Gilman Louie is starting American Frontier Fund, that are all now realizing, even I just looked today, Upshot VC, who was a traditional kind of e-commerce, you know, social media uh, venture firm in LA, now has defense as one of their key investment areas. I almost fell off my chair because people are realizing that you know, in spite of itself, the DOD is trying to figure out how to make this square peg fit in this round hole. So, so the answer is, um, yeah, but um, I would not be naive thinking it's just a, I got a better product than the DOD should want it. It's to try to figure out how do I become a dual use company? That is, how do I get some either government contracts to, to show off as a lighthouse customer, or do I... Um, turn into a commercial company and then uh, dual use those commercial products back into into the government. Um, and, and hopefully it's going to get easier. You know, we just simply can't go on like this. As I said, the DOD just came up with a $100 million, let's go invest, you know, 10, prog 10 program offices now have $10 million to go spend, um, which I think is, you know, almost amusing because the VCs invested, I don't know, somewhere between two and three hundred billion in U.S. venture last year, and we're trying to <laughs> cross the valley of death with a hundred million. I'm, I'm both crying and laughing at the same time. Meaning, okay, it's a good idea, thank you. But how about engaging with the rest of private capital? Um, tell me what you're doing with PE and venture, and and how to break that system, and how's that going to connect a large contract? So to answer your question, Lucas, I don't think it's lean to the extent of Learning about product market fit and learning about military needs is is going to get you over that transom. I think learning about how do I get to scale, you know, not just how do I get one demo contract, what's the contracting process look like currently in the DOD? And some of those uh, um, incubators and accelerators inside the DOD, like AFWorks, has figured out how to do something called stacking sivers, uh, meaning instead of giving you a a door price of a million and a half dollars, the door prices now could be 10 or $20 million, which again, for a startup might be a good first contract. I'm not sure unless you could get to a, a major contract that's sustainable, but it's a good place to start maybe to get you over the valley of death. You kind of mentioned some like AFWRC, some programs like this. We'd love to hear your take on um, SBIRs, SPTRs, and all of these different programs. One of the things that I think a lot of our listeners who, uh, many of which are uh, either investing in uh, defense-related companies or founding defense-related companies. A lot of the things that they think about is, one, if you're new to this space, getting into government contracting feels very scary, right? Do you need to go hire all these consultants to help guide you? How do you write the proposals and write the responses um, and so on? That, that can be something very intimidating. At the same time, a lot of these programs also become, to be honest, grant mills where you have these uh, companies that are just pumping out to get, you know, SBIR after SBIR after SBIR and not really trying to push innovation forward. And then the third element I'll put on is kind of this valley of death. After you get to from phase one to phase two, the pathway to a program or record is very tough. So we'd love your take on those programs in general and uh, kind of uh, well, any thoughts you have on improving them. Well, let's work backwards from the point I, I started with about reform versus redesign. You know, the bottom line to me is the DOD doesn't want any new startups to have programs of record. It's a big idea. Um, why? Because, again, the, the DOD budget's a zero-sum game. If you start giving new entrants pro uh, programs of record, it's taking away money from incumbents. So they're going to go down fighting tooth and nail. And so if, if you are a startup and you're trying to go for a, a 
program a record, you ought to understand that from day one is that it's not like selling to B two B in a in a commercial venture where where there's interest in you succeeding. The entire system is actually designed for you not to succeed, and that's a pretty honest take on how the DoD is organized today. And I and again, there's a ton of innovation theater and lots of blah blah blah. Just look at how my, how the money is doled out, and look at the names, and tell me any startups on that list that didn't. Wait a minute, that wasn't started by a billionaire, right? It's like, okay, where are they? And they just simply don't exist. That said, um, back to your point, getting an SBIR grant if you could get one from the DoD or even a stacked cyber, uh, I think they're called Stratfies and Packfies from AppWorks. You know, it's a great start, and I would, and because they're non-dilutive, I would absolutely you know, go do that. But my advice usually to at least my students and startups is see if you can figure out how to be a dual use company. That is take non-dilutive money from the DOD, but figure out if there's a commercial part of your business that you could scale simultaneously and don't give up trying to get programs of record or at least partnered with an existing crime or whatever who wants to steal your IP and take your stuff and acquire you for peanuts. But don't be confused about that the game is fixed. Um, and right now, it's not fixed in your in your favor. Just to make a quick follow up on what you said, when you look at the problems that we have today, you know, pertaining to defense and the military, what percentage of them do you think can be solved by companies truly pursuing dual use technologies versus companies that really set out to just be government contractors? And I'm thinking of Vanderbilt as an example to this. That, to my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong never actually really had an interest of being a, a dual-use company uh, and just really wanted to just be a traditional government contractor in the future prime. Uh, and is it, you know, is it possible that all of these companies that you're working with like really want to be dual-use companies? Or you know, do, we re- do we need more companies like Andrew? Well, remember I said it's okay to focus on the military if you start with a billionaire. And so, you know, Andrew was founded by Palmer Lucky, who sold his company Oculus to Facebook and who had lots of money to throw into, you know, assaulting the castle. If you're a typical startup, you don't have that amount of capital, right? So it's possible, but it really requires, at least today, an immense amount of capital because the system is designed to ignore you. Uh, Look at SpaceX. You know, the Air Force basically did this for, you know, 10 years and as they had the same product it was like finally you know the, the people who were saying no and were beholden to you united launch alliance and everybody else finally either retired left or you know it was so inevitable they needed to but think about if the air force would have adopted spacex five years earlier we would have been much ahead of the game but and remember if that was a, a regular startup they would have been out of business before they would have gotten a military contract and thank goodness for NASA. NASA looked at them and said, well, of course, this is a cheaper way to get to space. We'll use these guys instead of the Russians and, you know, launching on uh, on Soyuz. Yes, you know, it's possible, as I keep saying, right now, the system isn't designed to acquire from non-traditional vendors at scale. And by scale, I mean programs are record. Now, that might nece- not necessarily be needed if you're happy with you know revenues and tens and twenties and hundred million dollars a year that might be fine for a company but if you want to have revenues of billions of dollars a year you need to break into a game that doesn't want you at the table and, and that is an organizational design problem so steve we spent a lot of time uh how do i put this nicely uh talking about uh kind of these existing programs of records and the primes that have them the incumbents in the industry uh, maybe with a little bit of, uh, you know, hope that they'll innovate more, a little disdain for the lack of innovation that's been happening there. Um, to take the counter position, though, what should we be learning from these primes? What are they doing incredibly well to push the ball forward? Or is there nothing? Oh, listen, please don't get me wrong. It's not that we don't need primes. Of course, no one is going to build things that hunting and angles knows how to build, right? We're, we're not going to build aircraft care. Let's, let's pick on Navy, and since our center is funded by the Office of Naval Research at, at Stanford, uh, you know, no startup is going to build a carrier. But in fact, you know, if you look at what a 21st century shipyard should be, you might decide that we actually need a shipyard capable of building not tens or hundreds, but thousands of things that maybe 
on the surface are semi-submersible, that's autonomous, that do different things than carriers do. They they might do autonomous resupply. They might support the Marines in their EABO concept in contested environments. They might do lots of other things that the traditional things can't do, or or we might think of them as hedge strategies. Same in Ukraine. I mean, we look drones, you know, where's the arsenal in the U.S. that are making thousands or tens of thousands cheaply, not, you know, $10 million a pop, but like a factory of these. Where are those new arsenals and who's creating those? Well, that requires somebody stepping all the way back and saying, no, 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 I don't want to compete with these existing vendors who are know how to build incredibly exquisite systems and know how to integrate at scale and know how to do the finest sensors in the world. Uh, but who are creating the new concepts and who could deliver those at speed? Um, you know, that's not a system we have, except, and I just want to point out something very funny. Every service and combatant command has figured out they kind of need this. So there's a new form of contracting called OTAs, which most of your viewers are probably familiar with. Those are non-FAR contracting. It allows you at least five, doesn't get you a major program on record, but it gets you more money quickly. And almost every service has their equivalent of a rapid capabilities office. That is, well, we'll paint it black and we'll put it over here and no one could actually see it, but we could deliver quickly. So if you think about what I've been describing is we need to redesign, not reform. We've already hacked the system, but not admitted that we have. We're actually doing these things, trying to bypass our existing organization in both contracting and in delivery, but we've not institutionalized it. It's a big idea. We already kind of do this in the in the corners of the services combatant commands, trying to hide, oh yeah, this is how we get rapid stuff, or here's how we bypass contracts. So the last thing I want to point out is the roles of the FFRDC, that is federal lab. I spent a lot of time inside of them, and there's, you know, there's most of them are still building, you know, things that commercial companies have done now at scale because the competition, whether it's networking or 5G or whatever, or AI and machine learning, et cetera, um, is just so much more Darwinian outside than it is inside a nice, pleasant federal facility that you get your salary and you still have a job, whether you succeed or not. And that also needs to be reformed, not replaced, not whatever, but they need to spend a lot more time outside their building, figuring out what can you buy, what can you integrate, and what do we know that's exquisite to our lab or federal facility that's either classified or is kinetic or is exquisite on the front end, rather than trying to replicate things that already exist off the shelf. And we do a terrible job with that. Why? Because there's no motivation for that. There's absolutely no reason why our FFRDCs have to measure themselves both against our adversaries, how, what are they doing, and commercial tech. No one's holding their feet to the fire. And again, the reason why? Because no one in charge actually comes from the outside world and understands those technologies. So, well, I, I mean, it's amazing how so much of this really just comes down to the right incentive alignment and making sure, you know, the right the right parties understand what actually needs to happen. So to take a step back and look at uh, geopolitics for a second, Steve, I think we know the answer to this, but I'd love your take. Like, one, are we in a space race right now? And how would you characterize kind of the kind of global situation that we're in, you know, with countries like Russia and China and others? Do you mean, are we in a... In a competitive environment? Is that what you're asking? Well, you know, I think if we go back in time, right, the the last space race spurred so much innovation and really pushed things forward. We're starting to see now uh, on the commercial side, kind of that being reinvigorated. Russia just the other day said that they're going to pull out of the ISS after 2024. You know, do you think we're entering kind of that similar kind of space race environment yet again? Yeah. So one of the one of the things I found is that Things don't change unless there's a leadership change or you recognize you're in a crisis. And, and the and the interesting thing is we seem to be acting like the canonical lobster boiling in the pot is never quite saying that the country's in a crisis, meaning we've kind of been lying to ourselves, saying, oh, China's a near-peer competitor, without actually telling the American people that, you know, we're out-budgeted, out-spent, out-peopled, out-whatever, out-innovated, um, because we'd have to admit that the status quo can't change. And, and I think this is a failure of leadership on multiple levels, in multiple branches. In fact, all three branches of the government. 
about people being able to stand up and say, this ain't working and we're not winning anymore. And by winning, I mean just being able to keep pace, not not just to win a war. I mean, I think winning a war already says you've lost is to deter a war. You know, adversaries will, particularly in this environment, and this, you know, facing autocracies and totalitarian states and dystopian states like China and Russia, Iran and North Korea, deterring a war is to making them understand they can't win one. That's not clear anymore. It's certainly not clear in the South China Sea. It wasn't clear to Putin in, in the Ukraine and Russia. It's probably not clear to North Korea and whatever. So it's having a credible deterrent that makes people change their calculus. And if you want to see change calculus, just think about the Chinese thinking about Taiwan and then us thinking about it as in our national interest and what happens when it when semiconductors are no longer made in, in the Western world. You know, lots of interesting consequences. And so, so I go back to this is a leadership problem of admitting we have a crisis. And here's the big idea. You don't do the same thing with the same people, with the same organizations in a crisis. And if you don't think you're in a crisis, you just think about this. Look at all the pe- people that this administration, and not just, I'm not just picking on this administration, but it's, it's the one we're in. They're the same people you would have appointed five or 10 years ago. Well, what are we thinking? It's not the same world. It's not the same, you know, it's, again, world-class people, world-class organization for a world that no longer exists, but leadership that won't recognize that. And that's the problem we have. And we have it in Congress, we have it in the DOD, and we have it in the executive branch. And that reforming around the edges. Hey, we have a PVE committee. Well, maybe in five years, they'll tell us something we know. You know, we probably had a PBE committee when Washington wasn't happy with the boat he got across the Delaware. You know, we're going to have the same conversation. We need something as radical as we did in World War II with OSR&D. And it's not to get shiny objects. I just want to emphasize that. It's not to get the latest, you know, now I have a demo. The DOD has more demos than any other place in the world. They need deliverables with speed and urgency in the hands of the warfighter. They need new operational concepts that completely complicate an adversary's current strategy and how to win a war. Um, we we need head strategies, whether they're in the air or the sea or other places in space. And that's just not happening at scale. You know, there's some stuff, obviously, that's happening that we don't read about, but not at scale. It's stuff that ought to really, like, make people in Moscow and Beijing think the Americans have finally woken up. Holy cow. I don't think we could take the actions we wanted to take. And that's to preserve the peace, not to win a war. If we are in Space Race 2.0, you mentioned a while back uh, the Space Force. I'm, I'm curious, how do you evaluate uh, Space Force's uh, role to date? In, you know, in an optimistic scenario, what impact could the Space Force have in this geopolitical scenario that we're in? Well, remember, the Space Force is part of the service, right? They're a service, much like the Marines are part of the Navy. Everybody thinks the Navy is the ships, but the Marines are part of the Navy and not a separate service. The Space Force didn't get what it wanted, which to be a standalone service. It's part of the Air Force. So there you have a service that's responsible for a training and acquisition and you know organization of ground stations and, and stuff in space, et cetera, and working with NRO and other or- defense support organizations. But then you have the combatant command, right? With space command, which is a, they're the people who are supposedly prosecuting the pointing end of things. And, and they're kind of learning um, how to operate at different speed because their adversaries are doing things in space, much like China's doing things in, in uh, the South China Sea. That would rattle your teeth. And obviously Russia is as well. And, and you know, they, they kind of, keep things close to the chest. So you have to read the Washington Post to figure out the most secret things that are going on this week. If you want to know what's going on in space, read the Post. But I think they're just a precursor of of some of the innovative changes, but also some of the problems they have, which are still acquisition. We keep going back to, we keep trying to put the square peg in the round hole. We're in the commercial world. I mean, you guys know this and, and most of your listeners know, it's just unimaginable. You could do a deal within three weeks on a handshake and maybe finish the contract in 90 days and, and be shipping at the same time. As I said, it's no joke. You can't even move paper from one end of the, let alone one end of the Pentagon, but even from office to office in 90 days. It's not, again, 
the malice. It's the system that's designed that way when you had big idea. Think about this. We have something called .mlpf, which is this whole 30-year life cycle about maintenance and support and everything else. Well, if you think about today, we should be thinking about a tritable system, about stuff we just kind of use, throw away. Switchblade is the ultimate example that is a loitering drone that you know goes in for a hit. But other things where they're not manned, you really don't care. And in fact, if they're still around five years, they're obsolete. Well, what does that do to contracting and support and whatever? We just don't have the, the, the systems to support that. We don't even have the mental mindset that says, no, we do need things like carriers and man bombers and whatever. Then that needs to go through system A, this execution part. And we don't want to touch that or maybe want to, want to reform it a little. But we need a whole different parallel organization that, that works hand in hand. We built that once before in this country. We need to build it again. Um, and that requires what we call a doctrine. We have doctrine for execution. That is, you know, Army, Navy, all the services have doctrine. We have joint doctrine, which basically is what do we believe? How do we act? You know, all the way down to here are the manuals, the field manuals and the TTPs. Where are those for the innovation side? It says, no, no, no. We have the execution side. And where's the innovation doctrine? And that's the other piece that we're missing. And as I said, this is part of an organizational redesign of the DOD that just needs to occur. Or else we're going to keep arguing about how do we how do we fix the edges rather than how do we fix the problem? We're arguing about, well, how many billionaires does it take to reform the Department of Defense? If you think about that, what the what Peter Thiel and, and uh, Elon Musk and Palmer Lucky have done is they've acted as innovation heroes. And, and I call this innovation heroics which are actually signs of a dysfunctional organization. That is, they've accomplished miracles, but they've done it in spite of the way the organization is designed. And rather than people stepping back and saying, well, wait a minute, why did it take heroics? We keep saying, well, we need more heroes. Well, why don't we just simply say we need to redesign the organization so it doesn't require heroes. It just requires normal startups to be able to operate in a system that's designed to actually get things out to the warfighter rapidly. If you are one of our listeners and you care about the future of America and American values, Steve, what is your recommendation to them? What should they be doing to start fixing some of the things we talked about or uh, really helping push innovation forward? Well, I think the first thing is to step back and go, you know, why are we beating our head against the wall if we're in startups or scale-ups or outside the DOD in trying to work inside of an organization that doesn't want us? And the first thing I would be doing is talking to your congressman, whether both sides of the party. And what's really interesting is, you know, the people who execute and the people who run normal organizations are the last people in the world to realize you need to redesign the organization. It's a big idea. And the innovation heroes are also having so much fun being heroes. They also don't think about redesigning the organization. They're happy being heroics. Though some of them, if you ask them to step back and say, well, what would an organization look like? They could probably give you a good idea. I think Congress has just at, lacked two things. One is they lack the idea that, wait a minute, maybe we need a parallel organization here. It's done, been done before. And two is, here's a block diagram of what that org chart ought to look like. So one is, I'd be all of us putting our thinking caps on going, maybe this isn't a how do we beat this organization to death, but how do we help them think about what a redesign look like? The second is, if you're also on the outside, for gosh sake, don't give up trying to sell to the DOD. Just understand that there are people, whether they're the primes or the FFRDCs or the existing people inside who desperately don't want you in. But there are people who do want you in, that there's a whole set of innovators. In fact, we just had our third Red Queen conference at the ranch um, where we brought in 70 innovators across the DOD and IC to kind of work this problem. And we do that every couple of years. There are lots of people inside the DODIC who want to work with new technology, new operational concepts, rapid delivery, et cetera. These are these islands of innovation. These are the people who, in fact, will make this possible. But as I said, it's not going to work at scale until the, these people are actually running things. You know, in a crisis, you don't appoint the same people. You employ a couple of crazy people parallel or partnered with the same people, and you get a much different outcome. And those are the people who are eventually those innovation heroes inside the DOD and innovation leaders inside the DOD. Eventually, they're going to be called on to actually change the system. And then for those inside the DOD or the leaders, um, 
who want to serve their country, I think they need to take step back. I mean, the senior execs need to step back and go, well, why are we making this so hard? Is it because I want a job and a prime when I retire? Or is it because the system I'm working in is just not designed to, to allow this to happen at scale? So that's my two cents. So helpful, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us on Village Global Solar Punk. You know, you mentioned it earlier. I just want to remind our audience why I started teaching Hacking for Defense and, and some of these other military programs. Is um, you, you know, I teach at Stanford, where, where for a while the best thing you could do is go to work for a fan company, Facebook, Apple, you know, Netflix, Google, etc. And, and my students had no opportunity to understand how bright, smart, dedicated, and important the jobs are that people in the DOD were doing. And Hacking for Defense puts together students who would never have con considered, you know, an uh, option in working in national security. And th this program that started our school is now in 60 universities and have put students in, in, into places that have just blown their mind. And our connect rate, at least to the last Stanford class, was 100% of the team, 100% have decided to follow on building something, whether it's a startup or, or consulting or whatever with their sponsors in the DOD. Multiply that 60 universities now we're in our seventh year and we're trying to make a dent and actually bottoms up getting people who have normally never been engaged in the in the DOD and I hate to say we were prescient but I mean yeah it was kind of interesting but post-Ukraine I think people now understand the reason why we sleep safely in our beds at night is by all the people who work hard in their careers in the Department of Defense and National Security. And I think that's becoming pretty well understood where it was, yeah, 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 but let me go work for a social media company or look at this new FART app I just created. Now, all of a sudden, there's a lot more interest in building these things that could help the country, as I said, deter or if needed, win a war. But I think we're eternally grateful for the people who serve and serve their country. And we just want to make the, the system better. And we need to make people understand that the system is currently designed kind of incapable of doing that and that we need to think a little more creatively on how to do so awesome. and that we're, we're here to help them that's an amazing place to wrap steve thank you so much for doing this with us we tremendously appreciate it well thank you guys this is fun if you're an early stage entrepreneur we'd love to hear from you check us out at villageglobal.vc